We're talking about hermeneutics. Can anyone tell me what hermeneutics is? How to study, yeah. It's how do, you, how do you interpret the Bible? In theology, we have really big words for really simple ideas, and hermeneutics is just a big fancy word for interpreting the Bible. Um, it's actually a biblical word. They didn't just make up this term hermeneutics just to confuse seminary students. It's, it's a biblical word. It comes from a Greek word, hermeneia. Hermeneia. Uh, Lunida, which is a Greek lexicon, says it refers to the capacity or ability to interpret or to translate. And it's used in a couple of places in your Bible. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul uses this word in verse 10. He says, "...into another the workings of miracles, into another prophecy, into another the distinguishing of spirits, to someone else various kinds of tongues, and to another the translation of tongues." That word there, translation, is our Greek word hermeneia, to interpret or to translate. He uses it again in 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What is the outcome then, brothers? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has a translation. Now, whenever you do a translation, you are doing an interpretation. Every translation is an interpretation of some kind. And so, to say whether it's translation or to interpret, same idea. You're expressing what is being said, and you're making it simple for someone else to understand. This same word, hermeneia, is used as a verb, Luke 24, verse 27, Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he, that would be Jesus, interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus opened up the word of God and he interpreted the scriptures and he explained to them from the scriptures what the scriptures said about himself. Same word. Lunida adds to that, the, the Greek lexicon again. It says, to explain on a more extensive and more and formal level, the meaning of something which is particularly obscure or difficult to comprehend. To do hermeneutics is to take the Bible, is to take Scripture and study it so you can explain it in a more easy-to-understand way, to make the Bible understandable to you. This same root word, hermeneia, the root of it is used in Acts 14.12, and here it's used as a personal pronoun or as a proper name, excuse me, Acts 14, 12, and they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Hermes is the root of Hermeneia. Anybody know Greek mythology? A little bit? What was Hermes' job? He was the messenger. He was the interpreter. He brought the message of Zeus. And they called Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. He came with the message. He was the interpreter. The English word hermeneutics refers to the science of interpretation. And it's generally used when we're discussing interpreting a written text. You don't hear people talk about hermeneutics and using it to understand a sermon or a speech. It, it's, it's applied to actual written text. In that sense, hermeneutics is the science of interpreting an author's language. Hermeneutics works with languages, real languages. Languages are intended to convey meaning. They're intended to convey a message. 
I'm getting up here talking this morning. I'm using language because I'm trying to convey information to you through that language. To understand any text, you have to understand the language that is being used. But it's not just a method or a technique. Hermeneutics refers to principles, principles of interpretation. What are the rules for interpreting a text? Louis Burkhoff said, hermeneutics is the science that teaches us the principles, laws, and methods of interpretation. Good hermeneutics, good biblical interpretation has rules, has principles that you must follow. And when you go outside of those principles, when you go outside of those rules, you end up with some really bad conclusions. These rules remain consistent. They remain consistent whether you're in Genesis or you're in Revelation. And as long as you maintain consistent rules and you maintain these principles, your conclusions will be consistent. Which means one, in, one person interpreting the Bible will come to the same general conclusion as the next person. If one person ends up with a result that Jesus is God, the next person will end up with the same result if you apply the same rules. And so that's what we're going to be talking about in the first half of this class is the principles and the rules and the theological foundation of hermeneutics. When we get to the second half of the class, we'll talk about the actual method of interpreting the Bible. So here's a question. Maybe you guys can answer this. Why does written language need to be interpreted? If I'm speaking English, you don't need to interpret what I'm saying. Why do we need to interpret a written language? That's true. That's very true. But it, let's just say if we're, if, we're, if we're talking about the English language and we're reading there, we're still having to interpret it. Okay. Okay, so that email, did you have to interpret the email that was sent out? You did. That was written language. You had to look at the, the language of that email and interpret and try to understand what it was Pastor Michael was saying. And both of you are correct that when we come to the Bible, there's a difference. And in that email, you went through the process of hermeneutics and you didn't realize it. But you still had to do hermeneutics. You still had to interpret the text. When you have a mortgage contract, it may be written in English. That's debatable or an insurance contract, you have to interpret the text. Because when you go to court, that's what the lawyers and the judges are going to do. They're going to try to interpret the text. Why does a written text need to be interpreted, but when I speak, I don't have to interpret it? That's right. That's right. Because when we're talking about communication, there are a multitude of expressions that you can use for conveying any idea. When I was in high school, we had a guy who was coming from Germany. He was a foreign exchange student. And he, had, he spoke well. He spoke English very well. But he spoke book English, not 1990s high school English. And the other students would say things like, oh, that's cool. And he was thinking he needs to get his jacket. 
he didn't understand how the term was being used. And so he would have to ask us, what do you mean by that? Each writer will use metaphors, similes, hyperboles, figures of speech according to their own taste, according to their own way of thinking, and they'll use those to try to convey their message in a way that they feel is best. And oftentimes, they'll do it in a way that's different from the person reading the text. And it's already been mentioned about the time gap between us and the biblical writers. But because you're reading and you're not listening, you can't turn around and ask them, what does this mean? When you use this figure of expression, what were you trying to say? The only thing you have to help you understand the message of the text is the text itself. And you can't go back to the author. The author's not alive anymore. You can't talk to him. You can't ask him what he meant. Hermeneutics becomes a necessity if you desire to receive what the author was trying to communicate. One author, Milton Terry, said Hermeneutics' aim is to remove the differences between a writer and his readers so that the meaning of the one may be truly and accurately apprehended by the others. The goal is to overcome the differences between what the author wrote and what my understanding is. So what are some of the differences when we talk about the biblical text? The first one is language. I had two really cool slides for you. One of them had a Hebrew text, and one of them had a Greek text. Have, have any of you seen the Hebrew from the Bible? How many of you, if I handed you the Greek or the Hebrew, you could pick it up and just start reading? couple? A little bit? Some of you may have enough Greek or Hebrew that you can pick it up and you can get bits and pieces. And so I was going to put John 3.16 up, and some of you probably could have looked at the Greek and identified a few of the things in there that would help you identify the verse. But without an understanding of Greek or Hebrew, that text is really useless to you, isn't it? Me handing you a Greek text or a Hebrew text, if you don't know the language, doesn't do you any good. It's just scribbling on a page. And there are some things that about language that make it difficult to understand. Uh, the first one would be um, words. In, in seminary, when you go and you learn the language, the first thing they tell you is, learn your vocab. If you don't know the vocabulary, you don't know the language. Words are vital. They are the most basic element of the language. Which is why when we talk about getting a good translation, a good English translation... We don't want you to get the paraphrase because the words the author used are important. They are vital to his intention and what he's trying to communicate. And if you don't know the words, you don't know what he's communicating. Another issue with language is syntax. Syntax talks about how words relate to one another. How did the author arrange those words and what does it mean when he uses this preposition and this verb? And you have to go back to, you know, middle school grammar everyone's most exciting subject. Another problem is genre, the kind of literature that you go to. There are some things you do in Hebrew poetry that you shouldn't do in narrative. There are some things you can do in a didactic portion of text like a, an epistle that you wouldn't do in the Gospels. And the final barrier within language is figures of speech. We kind of already talked about this one. If you're not a native English speaker and someone says, well, there's, a, there's more than one way to skin a cat. 
they might look at you funny. If they're not native and they don't understand the language, they understand that in a very literal sense and they don't realize it's a figure of speech. That can be a real barrier to helping them understand what you mean by that. Hermeneutics supplies the principles that you need to overcome the language barrier. What's another barrier to understanding a text? Time. Someone said it. Big one. How many of you had the privilege of meeting your great-grandparents? Anybody? Okay, a couple of you. How many of you had the privilege of meeting your great-great-grandparents? Nobody. Okay. Now, how many of you can imagine what it was like when your great-great-grandparents were alive? My great-grandfather was a private in the Army in World War I and worked his way up to being a captain. I couldn't imagine what life was like for him. What was life like before air conditioning? How many of you want to go back and find out? What was it like when you couldn't drive your car, you had to ride your horse? What was it like before there was a highway system? What was it like before there was a post office or mail? What was life like 200 or 500 years ago? And even in time, when we talk about time, time can also be a problem with language. How many of you have read the Puritans? How many of you will read the Puritans and you say, that sounds like a different language? Even time can affect your ability to understand the language. Most of you do not have the 1611 King James Bible. Not because you think there's something wrong with it, just because it doesn't always read like English to you. Time can be a real problem. The Puritans only wrote four to 500 years ago. Your New Testament was written 2,000 years ago. In some parts of the Old Testament, more than 3,000 years ago. And the events of parts of the Old Testament more, occurred more than 6,000 years ago. You have a significant time gap between you and your text of Scripture. And if we could go back to those times, I think all of us would say that the world was completely different than what we have today. If you were to get in a time machine and go back to the days of Moses, you wouldn't recognize the world. It would be completely foreign to you, and you would have to spend a whole bunch of time trying to get acquainted with the world as it is and get used to life without air conditioning and coffee. 3,000 years of history changes things. It changes the world. That's a significant barrier that you have to overcome. Hermeneutics is the bridge that helps you overcome that barrier. There's another barrier to interpreting a text, and that's culture. Culture. Dr. Clausen, by the way, I'm, I'm using his lecture notes extensively here, Dr. Clausen at TMS said, culture is the pattern of human behavior, particular to a society, race, group, place, or time, which is reflected in its beliefs, values, customary practices, speech, arts, ethics, etc. The American culture is a unique culture. Have you noticed? Some people say, well, we don't have a culture. No, you have a culture. You have practices and customs that you're, you're used to, that you do, they're, they're normal for you. Well, God wrote Scripture through men. And those men had a custom. They had culture of their own that was particular to their society. And when you read their writings, you will hear that culture come out. Moses was uniquely suited to write the law because of his background, his education, and the culture that he came from. If you're not an American and you come to America, some things here just won't make sense to you. And if you've ever gone to Europe or the Middle East, some things there just don't make sense to you. 
completely different culture, completely different way of viewing the world. It's a different worldview. If you want to understand what a writer is saying, you need to try to place yourself not only in their time period, but in their culture so that you can understand it. Because the culture of the biblical writers was very different than 21st century America. Very different. Right down to the politics and our belief that we have a right to vote. Really, really, really foreign to people of that day. R.C. Sproul said, unless we maintain that the Bible fell down from heaven on a parachute, inscribed by a celestial pen in a peculiar heavenly language, uniquely suited as a vehicle for a divine revelation, or that the Bible was dictated directly and immediately by God without reference to any local custom, style, or perspective, we are going to have to face the cultural gap. That is, the Bible reflects the culture of its day. If you want to understand the Bible, you have to begin by understanding the culture and bridging that gap. What's an example of culture affecting our interpretation? Since I don't have any slides, grab your Bibles. Let's just do it the old-fashioned way. John 13. This is a great example of um, how culture influences what the person is writing. John 13 is a well-known story. It's the Lord's Supper, his last meal. And Jesus does something during this meal that kind of throws people off. John 13, verse 14. If I then, the Lord, and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Now, see, this church isn't very biblical. I don't see any of you washing people's feet here. And yeah, I'm being a little facetious, but there are churches where they say you need to wash people's feet. And they take this as a divine command, that foot foot washing is now some kind of spiritual act. Do you see how culture is affecting this? Because Jesus didn't wash their feet as a spiritual act. It wasn't a religious ceremony that he was telling you and commanding you to repeat. It was actually kind of a necessity. It was a practical reason for washing their feet that he used to teach something. But even his teaching is deciphered when you understand the culture. Anybody understand why they did foot washing before you eat? It sounds awkward today to do wash your feet before you eat. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Remember, they, they didn't have tables like we do today. They didn't have chairs, and so they had the table was kind of like that high off the ground. And you had pillows, and you would lay next to the table. And so if this is the table, I would lay next to it kind of at an angle, and I'd lean on one side, and I'd eat with the other hand. This is how John can lean on Jesus while they're at the table because they're all laying down. Well, here's the thing. If you're laying down, Your head is near someone else's feet. And they didn't have cool shoes like we do today. If they were lucky, they had sandals. And the roads weren't all paved, so there was a lot of dirt. You see how foot washing might be practical before you eat? It would be nice that someone cleaned their feet before you sat down with them or laid down with them right here. Now, this was usually the job of the lowest slave in the house. The the master of the house would would appoint one of his, the lowest slave in the house, to wash everyone's feet. It was a job nobody really wanted for obvious reasons. 
but it was a job that needed to be done so people can enjoy the meal. And so Jesus looks around, and none of his disciples are willing to take the position of the lowest slave and perform this very practical and useful task. So Jesus, if you look there at John 13, 14, he says, If I then, the Lord and the teacher... This is why Peter was so upset when Jesus said, I'm going to wash your feet. He said, oh, no, you're not. Because Peter understood this is not the job that Jesus should be doing. I think it was at that point Peter realized he should have done it. And Jesus' point to them is this. If I'm willing to humble myself in the service of others, you too should humble yourself in the service of others. This was humble service that he was giving. This was not a religious act. This was not a sacrament. This was a practical activity that was used to teach a lesson in humility and serving others. Culture here matters, doesn't it? Understanding the time frame matters. Okay, so we've looked at language, time, culture. One more, geography. Geography. Scriptures discuss real locations. These are locations that are physical, where people actually live, they actually work, they actually died in these locations. And sometimes understanding the geography is important to just understanding what in the world they're talking about. Uh, go over to Matthew 20. In Matthew 20, there's a statement here that requires some um, understanding. Matthew 20, verse 17 he says, and as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, we'll stop there. Why would he say, go up to Jerusalem? Because when you look through the Bible, everywhere they talk about going to Jerusalem, whether you're talking about you're south of Jerusalem, north of Jerusalem, west of Jerusalem, east of Jerusalem, they always say, we're going to go up to Jerusalem. Yeah, so you got it. It's just a matter of geography. Jerusalem was on a high hill. It was the highest hill in the area for the simple fact that it's harder to attack a city that's on top of a hill than it is to attack one in a valley. And so no matter which direction you went, if you wanted to get to Jerusalem, you had to go up. Pretty simple, isn't it? Here's another one, John 4. John 4. What, what happens in John 4? Anybody remember? Woman at the well. Somebody knows their Bible. Jesus goes to see a woman at the well. This well is in a place called Samaria. John 4, starting in verse 3, says, And he left Judea and went away again to Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Why would John include he had to pass through Samaria? Everybody at that time knew that to go from Judea to Galilee, you had to get through Samaria. Judea, Samaria, Galilee. Everyone knew between the two was Samaria. Why would he say that here? Well, that's right. Because when you look at a map, what you see is Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and over on, well, on this side for you, was the Jordan River. And the Jews hated the Samaritans so much that they would take the long way and they'd follow the Jordan River up and they would go around Samaria. So they didn't have to, you know, walk on that dirty dirt in Samaria. But why did Jesus 
have to go through Samaria. It says he had to. He had a divine appointment in Samaria. And if you look at his, what they believe was the track that he took to get there, it went straight through the middle of Samaria. He had a divine appointment. He was intending to meet that woman there at the well, which makes, you know, just speculating, it makes me wonder, did he have to hurry up to get there and that's why he was so tired because he knew he'd miss her? John 4 gives us the reason for it. John 4, verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who bore witness. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. He had a divine appointment. He was intending to be there. So she would hear the gospel, that she would come to believe, and all of those people would also come to believe. Jesus didn't really care too much about the social distinctions about Samaria and what the Jews thought of the Samaritans. These differences, time, language, culture, geography, form a really, really large divide between you and the text. You have to cross the Grand Canyon to get back to what the text means. Hermeneutics bridges that gap. It allows you to cross over to the other side. And this is where some people will say, yeah, but don't I have the Holy Spirit? I mean, doesn't the Holy Spirit illuminate my mind so that I can understand? Then I shouldn't need hermeneutics. Well, no, that actually doesn't work. The Holy Spirit illuminates your mind so that you can understand. He doesn't give it to you on a platter and say, here you go, and zap you with knowledge. You still have to study. That's even what Paul told Timothy, study to show yourself approved. You still need to interpret. There are only three people in the world who do not need hermeneutics. Anybody know who they are? There are three people who do not need hermeneutics. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That is actually a correct answer. That's the first one, God. God does not need hermeneutics. God does not need to interpret any written text. He is omniscient. He understands everything perfectly. He knows what you're going to say, and he knows it better than you do. Okay, so you got the first one right, God. Who's the second one who does not need to use hermeneutics? The author. Yeah, you don't need to figure out what you meant when you wrote it. Well, look, we hope not. <laughs> Every now and then, you know, <laughs> every now and then it happens. The author doesn't need you to explain to him what he meant when he wrote. He doesn't have to have an interpretation of his own writing. He knows what he meant there. Now, he may need to clarify what he meant because it may come out differently than what he intended, but he doesn't need clarification on what his text means. And so Paul doesn't need you to explain to him what he meant. The prophets don't, know, don't need people to explain what their text means. They know what their text means. And yes, that is debated. Some people say the prophets didn't know what they were writing. All right, there's one other. I'm sorry? The recipient wouldn't need the hermeneutics to interpret. The recipient of what? Okay, so you're saying like the Ephesian church... Yeah. Okay. I, I see where you're going with that. I see where you're going with that. Um, they wouldn't need to consciously perform hermeneutics, but they would still do it 
subconscious, not subconscious, we don't have a subconscious, they would still do it without realizing it. Even today, when you read a, a letter or a book written today, you still have to engage in interpretation. But you're close. Who else does not need to interpret a message? I'm sorry? That's true. <laughs> I didn't think of that possibility. That is true. As soon as I say this, several of you are going to do a face palm and like, I knew that. I'm sorry? Satan? Yeah, he does bad hermeneutics. He's... All right, well, here, the last one I was looking at was the prophet. The prophet himself. When the prophet receives divine revelation from God, he does not need to interpret that revelation. When God spoke to Moses, Moses didn't have to figure out, what does God mean when he said this? Because a prophet receives divine revelation from God, God goes to the prophet, and he gives information to the prophet. And God supernaturally empowers the prophet not only to understand the message, but then to convey that message to its intended audience. That's very important. God empowers the prophet to not only understand, but also to convey. And so, therefore, the prophet does not need to interpret what he has received. For every other person, you have to interpret written communication. God will provide illumination to the believer so you can accurately and correctly interpret what is written, but that doesn't alleviate you of your responsibility. You have to interpret the text. And you actually use hermeneutics. You use the principles of interpretation every time you pick up a book, every time you read an email. You have to try to figure out what that person is saying. And you have to derive the meaning of the text. And in the case of emails, you likely share enough similarities with the person who sent you the email that you really don't need them to explain it. I used some of the, the idioms earlier. That's cool. More than one way to skin a cat. Anybody need those to be explained? you understand them. But you still engage in the process of interpretation. These principles that we're going to talk about are second nature to you in your own time frame, in this setting. Uh, another writer, Bernard Rahm, this is a little long, but it's a good quote. He said, people of the same culture, same age, and same geographical location understand each other with facility. Patterns of meaning and interpretation commence with childhood and early speech behavior. And by the time adulthood is reached, the principles of interpretation are so axiomatic that we are not aware of them. Just because you're not aware of the fact that you're interpreting a written text doesn't mean that you are not interpreting it. When you read an email, you have to interpret it. Now, there are two basic categories, two broad categories when we talk about hermeneutics or interpretation. The first one is general hermeneutics. General hermeneutics. General hermeneutics refers to the principles of interpretation that are used for any writing in any language. It doesn't matter what the text is, these principles apply. Special hermeneutics is the second kind. These are principles that are used for specific classes or types of literature. So, for example, a principle of general hermeneutics is the literal interpretation. Now, we'll explain what that means later. But that principle is carried over no matter what text you go to. In short, literal interpretation just means you interpret the text using the basic laws of grammar and language. That's it. 
And it doesn't matter what text you go to. You don't change the rules of language when you start reading someone's email and then derive whatever meaning you want out of it. At least I hope that's not what you do. And that's not what you want a judge to do with your insurance contract when you're in an automobile accident, right? The principle of literal interpretation applies no matter what text you're going to. They apply to any form of literature. Special hermeneutics refers to principles we apply uniquely to the interpretation of Scripture itself. Uh, Dr. Clausen, my TMS professor, said, in other words, there are general principles of interpretation that apply to all forms of literature and communication, including the Bible. These are general hermeneutics, yet there are special principles that apply uniquely to reading God's Word. Now, there are many ways that the Bible is like other books. One way it's like other books is that it was written by people. It was written by men. It has authors, human authors who really lived and worked and breathed and, and sinned like everybody else. It has human authors. And it contains all the elements of writing that you would see in normal books today. Figures of speech, narrative, poetry, hyperbole, greetings. It discusses historical events. And like other books, this one actually has more than one author. It has 40 some odd different authors. We have books today like that. You know what they're called? That have multiple authors? Anthologies. A collection of writings, right? It's not completely unheard of. Now, it's a little bit different that, you know, the authors of the Bible lived over a span of 1,500 years. That's a little different. And they wrote in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. That's a little different. But they all came from different cultures, different societies, different ways of life. In many ways, the Bible is just like other books. And we interpret it like any other book. Is that kind of shocking to some of you? I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, and they told us there are four different ways you interpret the Bible. And I'm, you look at it now, and it's like, I would never do that with any other book. However, there are some areas where the Bible is not like other books, where the Bible is very different from other books. What makes the Bible unique, while it is an anthology, what makes it unique is all 66 books of the Bible make up one cohesive, unified message. From Genesis Revelation, the message is consistent without contradiction and without any confusion. Other anthologies, you'll find authors who disagree with each other and say contrary things to one another. And we expect it. It's an anthology. In the Bible, you don't find it. Every author in the Bible agrees with his co-authors in every element of what they wrote. Uh, Kevin Van Hooser said, the reading of Scripture is similar to the reading of books in general, but is ultimately marked by an even greater dissimilarity to its character as the Word of God. Stated differently, what makes the Bible like other books is the fact that it has authors. What makes the Bible unlike other books is that its primary author is God. And that has to be a fundamental part of your hermeneutic. It has to be a fundamental part of how you interpret the text is by understanding that this is a work of God. And so, I want to spend a little bit of time making sure we're all on the same page. And we need to talk a little bit about bibliology. Anybody know what that is? This is a system, this area of systematic theology. What is bibliology? Yeah, what is the Bible? To do this, go over to Revelation 1.1. There's a word there I really want you to see. Um, I'm not getting into eschatology this morning, I promise. 
But there is a word here that I want you to look at. Revelation 1.1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Now, I will tell you this first part, the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a whole big debate on this. We're not going to go into the debate, the debate this morning. But I do want you to see that word, revelation. Anybody know what word that is? Apocalypsis. Apocalypsis, from which we get our word apocalyptic or apocalypse. Now, you'll hear people say, well, this is apocalyptic literature. And what they mean by that is this book, the book of Revelation, fits within a category of literature from about 200 B.C. to 200 A.D. that was written um, anonymously. And if it wasn't written anonymously, it was written with a pseudoname, another way of saying the author lied about who he was. And what they would do is they would write these fictitious stories. And because it was fictitious, they would mask it in symbols and metaphors. And it was all intended to try to make people feel better and encourage them. And it was supposed to sound like it was written from God. And so that's why they hid their names. Because they weren't hearing from God, they were just making it up. And so they would hide a lot of what they were trying to say behind this very figurative language. And some people say, well, that's what John is saying here. When he uses the term apocalypsis, he's saying that this is all figurative language that we really can't understand. But the problem is, if we use good hermeneutics, we realize that the word apocalypsis does not mean that at all. Nowhere close. Regardless of what you think of what your view of Revelation 1-1 is, or what your eschatological view is, the term here has nothing to do with hiding or covering. The term apocalypsis refers to what is uncovered, what is revealed, what is unveiled. It's actually used to describe the uncovering of someone's head. A woman removes her veil, a man takes off his hat. It means to uncover, to make known. The same term is used by the Apostle Paul, referring not to the end times, but to the gospel which he preached. Uh, Galatians 1, verse 12, For I neither received it, speaking of the gospel, from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation. There's the same word, apocalypsis, of Jesus Christ. It was something that Jesus himself unveiled and revealed to me. Uh, Dr. Mook at the Master Seminary says, Revelation um, defines it this way. When used with respect to God, revelation means the disclosing of God's existence and perfections, including his truth and works to man. When we talk about revelation of any kind, we're talking about God revealing, unveiling, opening up, making clear to us his nature, his truth, and his works. The gospel would, be, would fit within the context of what is divine revelation. Divine revelation is the unveiling, the revealing of God himself and his truth. The gospel which Paul preached is divine revelation. It is truth that was hidden before but is now known. It is known because God has made it known. Now this is important. That truth was given directly to Paul. It was given to Paul through Christ. It was not given to you directly, was it? When did Paul receive this revelation? Well, there's a couple possibilities. Uh, Paul spent three years with the resurrected Lord in the wilderness. He could have received it there. 
in 2 Corinthians 12, it says he was taken into heaven where he received divine revelation. There was revelation so great that he could not even talk about it. And it was so great that God had to give him a thorn in the flesh to keep him from becoming proud. Divine revelation reveals not only the truth of God, it reveals it, it unveils God himself. Outside of divine revelation, you can't know God. You would never come to know God. Uh, Psalm 19, Psalm 19, 1 through 3, we're not going to read the whole psalm, but Psalm 19, 1 through 3, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. God reveals himself through his creation. And in Psalm 19, he describes creation as revealing knowledge without words. Is creation enough for you to come to a saving knowledge of Christ? Nope. It's enough for you to be condemned. That's what Paul said in Romans 1. It's enough knowledge about God that you know that God exists, but it's not enough knowledge for you to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. It's not enough knowledge for you to know how to live in a way that is pleasing to God. And so God also revealed himself through prophets and apostles. And ultimately, he revealed himself in the person of Christ. Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, God has revealed himself and his truth in many different ways throughout history. Some prophets he gave visions. Others he gave dreams. Others, like Moses, he spoke to them directly. And still others, he took them to heaven. Any of you have any of those experiences? He's not doing that anymore, is he? Hebrews 1, verse 2, In these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, who he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus himself is a divine revelation of God. He reveals to us and shows us who God is. And through that revelation, we can come to know the person of Christ. We can come to know who God is. But as I just said, you weren't there, were you? I wasn't there. None of us were on the Mount, on Mount Sinai with Moses. You never saw the burning bush. You never heard the booming voice. You didn't see the finger of God write the Ten Commandments. You've not had the dreams and the visions and the angelic visits that Daniel received. You were not alive to walk on the earth with Jesus. You didn't go with Paul and the Apostle John to heaven to see wonderful things in heaven. All of those people received direct revelation from God. You have not. Okay, well then let's ask the obvious question. If you have not received direct revelation from God, how can you be sure that you have divine revelation? How do you know that what you've received is correct? How do you know that it's accurate? And you say, well, Scripture. Okay, but we just talked about Scripture. Scripture is written by men. You know what else men have wrote, written? The New York Times. How do you know that it's trustworthy? More than that, some of the people who wrote Scripture, people like Luke, didn't see a lot of what he wrote. Luke 1, verse 3, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order. That's at the beginning of his gospel. He did not see the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He was not there. 
How did he get the information that he has? He got it by going around investigating and asking other people what happened. So how do you know that his investigations and his conclusions are right? How do you know that you can trust the book of Luke or the book of Acts where, again, he was writing things, in some cases, he had no knowledge of? Yes. That is true. This is where the doctrine of divine inspiration is a vital necessity to your hermeneutic. You have to understand hermit, uh, inspiration. Inspiration becomes the divine link between the revelatory acts of God in the past and the people of God today. Inspiration serves to ensure that you have the complete revelation of God to man, and you have it without error. You have it without mistakes. You have the same revelation, and it is just as pure as it was when Daniel received it, when Moses received it, or when the apostles received it. They received it directly. You receive it mediated to you through a written text. So what is inspiration? What's the doctrine of inspiration? I'm sorry? God breathed. God breathed. Good. That is, that's it. Um, biblical doctrine, the big white systematic theology says, the doctrine that the Holy Spirit so guided the biblical writer that even the individual words and details are what God intended to be written. We call this if you want a big fancy term, because that's what they do in theology, plenary verbal inspiration. What is in your Bible was written by men. Inspiration says that its ultimate origin was from God. There's a really good description of this in Zechariah 12, excuse me, Zechariah 7, verse 12. If you want to find Zechariah, it's in the Minor Prophets. Zechariah 7, verse 12, they made their hearts like flint, so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit through the former prophets. This is speaking of a, a previous generation of Israel that did not obey the commands of God. And notice he says the law that would be given by Moses and the words of God are sent by the Spirit through the prophets. How did the law and the words of God get to the people? By the Spirit through a prophet. The revelation is given in words, using a human language, and that's important. Imagine if God tried to give the law to Moses and didn't use any words at all. That would be a really hard law to understand, wouldn't it? Without words, the law has no specificity. It's like creation. Without words, the direct, there's no direct application. Without words, there's really no authority behind it. There's no real command to obey. It doesn't communicate. Without words, we do not receive a specific detailed testimony of God's nature or His law. The content of the law was given in a human language and was given to prophets in words. I promise this is going somewhere. Those words, which make up the content of the revelation, is mediated from God through a prophet to the recipient, okay? Whether it comes to you through verbal speech or writing down, or being written down, the final product is divine revelation. When Moses received and listened to what God was saying, that is divine revelation, when Moses, as a prophet of God, goes and communicates that to someone else verbally, 
what he says to them and what they receive is divine revelation. When Moses then sits down and he writes that out and hands it to you, the content of what he wrote is divine revelation. It is God revealing himself, his nature, and his law. The words, whether spoken or written by the prophet, are the words of God. Everybody following me? They are the words of God. How do we know that? Because Zechariah 7, verse 12, the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit. The words are sent by the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of God that enables the prophet to understand. It is the Spirit of God that enables the prophet to communicate and to convey that just as perfectly as when it was received. The revelation was sent by God. The revelation comes from God. And the agent that brought the revelation to the prophet was God. And the agent that ensures the prophet delivers it accurately was also God. Whether that delivery is him speaking to you or writing it down. In the New Testament, we have this principle applied directly to Scripture. Go over to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. You guys know this passage. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. We'll just stop there for the sake of time. Notice at the beginning of verse 16, all Scripture. Let me say that again. All Scripture, not some, not most, all the word he used here, pasa, refers to each and every part of Scripture. Every bit, every thought, idea, concept, every fact, every verse, every paragraph, all of Scripture. Well, some say, well, no, no, he's just talking about the Old Testament because that's all they had at that time. Okay, question. Is the New Testament Scripture? Yes. Okay, what does the verse say again? All Scripture. Every bit of Scripture. And the word he uses here for Scripture is graphe. If you look back at verse 15, there's another word he uses. Verse 15, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. There it's not graphe, but grammata. So in verse 15, we have the word writings or grammata. Grammata stresses letters and individual words. You have known the sacred writings, and it stresses the individual letters and words. When you get to verse 16, graphe stresses the sentences and the paragraphs. Talks about the larger chunks of the text. So in these two verses, when Paul says all Scripture, he's talking about the individual words and he's talking about the paragraphs. Both. All Scripture. Old and New Testament. Every paragraph, every sentence every word, right down to the jot and the tittle. It is all inspired of God. Inspired, someone already said this, God breathed, theonoustos, or if you prefer the other pronunciation, theopneustos, whichever one you prefer. Literally, God breathed. It's not referring to God literally breathing into the writers, nor is it referring to God breathing some divine influence or character onto a text that was already written. Paul here is not describing the process of inspiration. He's describing the origin of the text, the source of the text. To say the Bible is inspired is to say that it comes from God and contains divine revelation. 
it comes from God, not just the ideas, not just the concepts and the facts. The very words come from God. Each individual word. The New Testament does describe the process of inspiration. 2 Peter 1, 2 Peter 1, you, you've heard these verses, 20 and 21. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. No prophecy of Scripture. You might say it this way, no part of Scripture. No part of Scripture was made up by some guy. The Bible does not have myths and legends that someone just sat down and came up with on their own. He says, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. The ultimate source is not people. It's not the mind of man. The ultimate source of the Bible is God. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. Ultimately, it was not the individual authors who wrote it. It was God who wrote the text. He says that, verse 21, but men move by the Holy Spirit. This word moved here is a passive verb. It describes being carried along, being driven. Same word was used in Acts 27 describing a ship being driven or moved by the wind. That's not to say that God is dictating Scripture. There are some areas where he does that. Nor does that mean that the writers were puppets. Nor does that mean that God was merely suggesting ideas. Here's an idea, now write it however you want. It's not what it's saying. What it's saying is that God used individual writers, their own experiences, their own style, their own logic, their own education, to write in their words God's word. So when you ask who wrote the book of Romans, Paul or God? Answer, yes. It is Paul's words, but ultimately they are God's words. Every single word comes from God. At the end of that verse, they spoke from God. Each author's writing is affected by his culture, his educational background, his life experiences, his attitudes, his favorite mannerisms and his expressions, yet it comes from God. Leviticus 1.1, Then Yahweh called to Moses and spoke to him, and everything that follows comes from God. Moses' writings in Joshua 1, 7 and 8 are considered authoritative. You are to obey them. The prophets use the phrase, thus says the Lord, more than 3,800 times. This is from God. Writers, individual authors of Scripture, recognize that other authors were writing from God. Ezra 1.1, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to complete the word of Yahweh from the mouth of Jeremiah. The word of Yahweh came from who? Jeremiah. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, it's not I that I'm speaking, it's God. He says, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10, but to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. This comes from God. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, comes from God. I'm speeding up because we're, we're out of time here. Mark 7, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees because they take their traditions and they exalt their traditions and they ignore the word of God. Mark 7, verse 9, and he was also saying to them, you are good at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. And what is the commandment of God? Verse 10, for Moses said, and then he quotes 
the book of Exodus. The Word of God is in the Pentateuch. They put aside what God said and replaced it with what they wanted. Mark 7, verse 13, Thus, invalidating the Word of God by your tradition, you have handed down. Invalidating the Word of God is setting aside the Old Testament, saying it's not important, it's not relevant, we don't need to pay attention to it. Hello, Andy Stanley. Okay. When we say the Scriptures are inspired, here's what we mean. That every word, every sentence, every idea, every statement from Genesis to Revelation is a divine revelation from God. And if our hermeneutic does not recognize that, if our method of interpretation does not take that into account, our hermeneutic is wrong. If your hermeneutic allows you to change the meaning of words to suit your theological conclusions, your hermeneutic is wrong. If your hermeneutic allows you to dismiss certain words because they don't fit your theological conclusion, your hermeneutic is wrong. Every word matters. Does that make sense? Everybody with me? Any questions before we close? No? Okay, let me pray for us and we'll be done. Father, we thank you so much for our time this morning. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to come together uh, to speak about and understanding and interpreting your word. We thank you so much that you have given us divine revelation. You've given it to us, as they say, in black and white. You have preserved it. You have kept it. It is your word. We ask that you would help us to be um, workmen who do not need to be ashamed, that we would accurately handle your word. We ask that you would be with us this morning in our worship, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.